0: Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the The DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right. Thank you for joining me on the DLC Drop Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome my friend Tracy Benson, uh, former professional athlete, professional volleyball player, former head of digital at Best Buy, She's had a tremendous, uh, a tremendous career in marketing, and now she is the CEO and co-founder of Obsession, which is a platform helping helping athletes really make money doing what they like, love to do independently and encouraging fans to better interact with them. Tracy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, John. It's awesome to be here. I'm super excited today.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So you and I got to know each other through Stadia Ventures, which we're both part of and love the group over there at Stadia. So to start out for our audience, why don't you give us some background about... First, tell us a little bit about Obsession? give us that elevator pitch, and then tell us about the start on the volleyball court.
1: Yeah, you got a couple things there. So we did get our start together at Stadia. Sometimes you need those uh, great connections just to meet the people you were always supposed to meet in life. So I knew right away when I met you, John... With somebody, We're going to have a lot to talk about, so thanks for having me here on the show today.
0: Appreciate that, yeah.
1: Yeah, so Obsession, I'll give you the elevator pitch. Obsession is a real-time sports platform connecting fans to top athletes and personalities. So our digital marketplace makes it easy for fans to level up all their obsessions by Booking an experience. Right now, the content experiences are virtual because of the environment that we're in, the pandemic. But fans can go on to our platform in our marketplace and they can find a wide selection of athletes and they can book an experience with them to level up all their obsessions. Whether they want to learn how to do that kickflip, they want to talk to the athlete about what it's like to be a professional cliff diver, or they want to get the skills and the techniques. And so, We're essentially trying to make it easy to give fans access, democratize access to all the world's top athletes at their fingertips. And Uh, for athletes to be able to make a living.
0: Absolutely. I love that because, I mean, I think your platform has come across at the perfect time, you know, where all those barriers are dropping away. You know, you and I have had many conversations talking about the You know, you have the the one percenters or you have these these major market sports, but then you have all these niche sports and it it can be so difficult for people to make a living even when they're the best in the world at what they do. So why don't you take us back to your volleyball experience and what enabled you over time to understand this need and give you the passion to deliver this for athletes?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was one of those kids that probably like so many out there. I mean, you know, probably hundreds of millions of kids, like all you thought about was sports. Sports defined me. It was throw faster, run faster, set better, spike better, block better, whatever it was, sports defined me. And So I started as a young kid, I started playing in first, I started playing on the little boys baseball team, because we didn't have a girls team. Yeah. So I'm not going back. I'm not going to go back and reveal the age here. But it wasn't that long ago. But so I was playing on the boys baseball team. And I was good. I had an arm like a rocket. So they put me at third base, you know, tried me pitching, but you know, It was, I love third base because I love the thrill of trying to throw somebody out at first while they're running as fast as I can. That grew into started playing for girls, fast pitch softball, played that all through like junior high, high school. I probably could have been recruited around fast pitch softball, but along that journey in about sixth or seventh grade. I was recognized by one of my middle school coaches, got into volleyball, started playing in the club system. Chicago has a very tight indoor club system. And so I played in that year round through junior high, through high school, was recruited for college. So I played at Western Illinois University. And I started as a freshman playing a 5-1, continued playing through that. And that's all I thought about in college too. I always said if there was a, you know, a academic degree for athletics, that's what we would all major in. So then out of college, I quickly took the opportunity to get out of the cold of Chicago, where I'd spent most of my life. And through the club system, like Junior Olympics and USVBA, which is the US Volleyball Association, we played all over the country, we played sometimes internationally, and I had the bug. And so I didn't know what else to do. So I went down to Florida and I started playing on what was a pretty new tour back then. I think technically I might get this wrong. So I apologize to all the viewers. (laughs) If you're going to like, you know, don't throw haters on me. But I think it was called at the time, like the women's volleyball professional something like league WVPA, which later then became the AVP, which is still the tour that exists today. Okay. And so I started playing on that. I thought, oh man, this is the dream, you know? Now I'm playing beach volleyball, which is a totally different game than indoor, but many indoor players, that's your only option is either play twos outside or find another career. And I was yeah. hell bent. Let's do it. So I did that for a couple of years. It was the growth of more sponsors, but don't laugh, John. I can remember watching it when I was in high school. In the prize, no joke, was a case of Pepsi. The prize, <laughs> okay, is that not wow. sick? You know, Thanks. and um, can you pay your
0: light bill? Did your did your landlord let you pay yeah. <laughs> your rent with with beverages? No. That's that's no, the real they question. didn't. Okay, yeah, exactly.
1: And uh, so I played for a couple of years, and ultimately, like so many athletes the opportunities were limited for how I could play and where I could play and on what tour, especially as a woman in a niche sport. Yeah. Like everything except, and we'll talk about this, I know, but the niche sports is what makes the world go around really, because that's where consumers are and athletes are. But so I played for a couple of years. I remember a bolé the i think it was a european sunglass brand at the time b-o-l-l-e okay they started sponsoring and i was like i thought i was rich i got sponsored for my sunglasses to wear on the court i was like
0: yes you made it
1: i'm not getting that case of pepsi i got sunglasses babe
0: (laughs) (laughs) there's levels of this yeah
1: there's totally levels and you know long story made short i couldn't pay my bills with products they just don't accept products for my rent, you know? So I couldn't pay my bills. I started working at night like so many athletes do. You know, I was waiting tables at Chili's. I was folding clothes at retailers. I was babysitting. I was doing camps. I was even helping Olympians work out and getting paid by the U.S., you know, Olympic Committee to help these top swimmers and divers and tennis players go through their workouts. Yet I, as an athlete, a volleyball player, equally as talented, different sport couldn't make a living. And so yeah. uh, don't laugh, but I'm sure you got the same phone call too. I come from like a uh, Swedish craftsman parents, Okay, you know, they're just, they build, they do the work yeah. hard, you know, earnest. I got the phone call that said, You know, the silver spoon that you never had. It definitely is not getting polished anymore. So it's time to get a job, which really meant make money and stand on your own. You got this great college education. Yes, your sport paid for that. But this is part of growing up is you get a career, make money. And their feeling was you tried. Awesome. But you know, mom and dad aren't going to keep footing the bills, so that was a hard phone call to get down in Miami because all of a sudden I was like, "Holy right!" You know that now I had to think about what am I going to do to make money to survive. So
0: it's so funny how it was fun. Yeah, our stories are so parallel. I can, you know, I could probably tell the nearly exact same story with skateboarding in the place of yeah. volleyball. So I'm curious of this. You know, in my career. Some people know I was on this six-month-long tour, ended up breaking my ankle. I, w- I was thinking, oh, I'm going to do this for 10 years. So my call, if you will, was more from the doctor than my parents. And I'm, I'm fortunate to continue mm-hmm. skateboarding. But, you know, when when I was looking at the job market, like you, I'd had all these crazy, crappy jobs that weren't career jobs. They were just covering what skateboarding didn't, or in your case, what volleyball didn't. What was your perspective of the job market when you said, oh my gosh, my passion isn't going to pay the bills. I'm going to have to get a job like everybody else without a lot of great employment experiences previous to that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I was probably uh, what I call that common kid in college, which is I had to achieve a certain amount of grades just to be able to maintain my full scholarship. So... But like so many other niche athletes I know, you do whatever it takes to just be able to play. And so I hadn't really thought about what am I going to do after college? I knew the education was important, but I hadn't really thought about it because all I wanted to do was play professionally. And so it was when I started getting... Not just one phone call. So my mom called first, you know, and usually most daughters can get away with stuff with their mom. Yep. But then my dad calls and I was not going to get away with it. So I have like a couple months in there. And, you know, when you think about like the side jobs, the hustling today, the athletes are still hustling. They're just doing it in different kinds of jobs. But I knew the hustling, you know, working at Chili's, like doing the coaching and the camps. It wasn't going to be a career, but it was the thing that was going to support me on the side. So when I started to have to think about a career, I actually got really uh, fortunate because somebody that I had started working with in one of these side jobs actually was the founder. He was one of the founders of Home Depot.
0: Oh, wow. And he loved
1: athletes. And so... Yeah. But, you know, at the time I'm like this 24 year old, I don't know anything about home improvement. This is a new chain. This is a new store. I don't even own a home. I'm living with, you know, just like you were probably living in the skate houses. I was living in the athlete houses with Olympic divers and, you know, swimmers and tennis players and other volleyball players and people I collected along the way as friends And so all of a sudden now I had to grow up and what I recognized right away was if I could take, if the worst case scenario was I could take my athleticism and apply it into a company, I wasn't sure what to do or how to do it, but if I could get paid to compete in business, whereas I couldn't get paid to compete as an athlete, I was like, I'll do it. And so a uh, guy by the name of Ken and was that guy who, you know, his kids love to play volleyball. I wanted to learn how to play golf. We had a little bet. I lost the bet. I had to go meet Arthur Blank, and there I land in Home Depot. And I commit five years to building a championship for an orange apron. Wow. You know, and those same principles applied, but it, it was crazy. It was fun. And I got to, you know, literally be an athlete every day because that's the only way to survive at Home Depot in those years growing 40% year over year.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. So you, so you, you went from this, this professional athletic background and then you're, you're in the, the, the working world. Was, was that, did that feel very corporate? Was there any, or, or, or was it pretty yeah. casual? It, it I know Home so Depot is not, not quite corporate. A, yeah.
1: Oh, it was, it was the perfect, Looking back, it was such an amazing skill experience that I got. Yeah. But it was so not corporate. It was awesome. That's cool. how not corporate it was, right? Cuz most people when they live in a corporate environment, they're like, yeah, there's nothing awesome about that. This was awesome. Cool. And Arthur, you know, Arthur Blank and Bernie Marcus, they were the founders. Ken was a founder but he was the financial founder. So he gave them the money to 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 grow and he helped lead that path and Really respect him. But Arthur, as you see today, he owns ball clubs. Yep. I think he just bought maybe racing. He's got the Atlanta Falcons. Right. People, athletes still today love working for Arthur. Whether you're the concession person at the stadium, mm. you're the coach, you're the player. He is, he's a coach. And so it was not corporate. It was here's the goal. Here's how you win a championship. Along the way, do whatever it takes to make that customer happy. Yeah. Because what a championship looks like is every single customer is happy in every single store you build around this country. And so it was pretty simple. The formula was relatively simple. Compete, win, do the right thing, take care of the customer you know, build the championship team.
0: That's cool. So for with Arthur specifically, what did you see in him as a leader that created this culture? And what did it teach you that you took as a leader and have employed since then?
1: Yeah, I often... He probably doesn't know this at this point because it's been a few years since, you know, we were both at Home Depot. Yeah. But so hopefully if he hears us somewhere... What I took away from him was he was the coach you always wanted. Mm. He was the coach that motivated you, that inspired you. I'm a transparent person. He's really transparent. Like, you know, where you stand in a heartbeat with Arthur. Okay. But what he always did was he really inspired people to reach beyond what they know. So great example is, I didn't know, diddly squat as they say about home improvement I didn't own a home my parents did all their improvement you know if I had to I was working on it but other than that and so he looked for people that have a passion that have a willingness and have a that compete and they compete you know unfortunately I compete in everything I compete you know not a detriment but the world is a competition. How can you navigate your way through it? And so his leadership skills really taught me the importance. And I really admired the way he led people. And he wouldn't solve it for his leaders, but he would always ask us the right questions. He would Hmm. ask us, well, how are you going to solve that? Have you thought about this? And he's just really uh, a good communicator, good at inspiring people and good at creating a healthy culture where people just will go die on the sword for each other. Yeah. And that was perfect for me because that that is typically where I came from in team sports. And most of my co- most of my coaches some were really on the far end of the scale of like high performance because that's what the team was, was high performance and they produced high performing athletes Yeah, and others were on the scale of, you know, like just culture. And so Arthur was the perfect blend of both. I mean, I could start in the morning building a store in a market and we would build hundreds of stores. So like every 12 weeks, we're building a system and a culture and hiring people. Yeah morning you know I'd run a huddle up to the front and the first week there's like five employees second week there's like 30 employees you know third fourth week there's like 50 employees then 100 then 150 but everybody would come rushing to the front we'd have like no different than the quarterback huddle and people would be like and then they just go do their work and the culture that you loved to get up and go to work. Hmm. Most of us in the leadership of building the markets didn't sleep. So we were up all the time, but
0: right, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: But it was cool. He's a great, great leader. And a lot of my leadership combines my athleticism, my coaching, and Arthur Blank, no doubt.
0: That's super cool. I, I think it's, you know, culture, the importance of culture can't be overstated what got me Mm -hmm. into the corporate world and ultimately encouraged me to go back and get my degree at Sacramento state was I started as a temp pretty randomly at a tax firm. And that sounds terrible to a lot of people. John,
1: Not like you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the great thing about it, you know, I'd never experienced an office job before. And so I was, I didn't know anything about that world. I didn't want to get into it because I've, I'd seen office space. I knew the stereotypes. I was like, I'm not trying to live that life. You know, I just spent six months in vans and hotels and skiing in front of thousands of people, you know, and so I I ended up at this tax firm and it was ended up being one of the top 50 best places to work in Washington, D.C., top 25 best managed firms in the in the United States. And the culture there, what it reminded me of and it showed me was that it's not so much what you're doing because you could be doing Mm. anything. I mean, you could look at. what you're passionate about a Home Depot job helping somebody find a hammer or whatever? Well, yeah. are you passionate about stapling together huge tax returns and you know make <laughs> sending it off to a client? Well, when yeah. you work with great people and you empower them and you inspire them, it's amazing what people can become passionate because they're passionate about each other. They're they're on the same team, and that's really interesting. You don't I don't think it's you don't have to have some super sexy job or you don't have to be in front of yeah. a camera or anything you. You can just work with great people and have great leaders, and then I think yeah. the the message too as a leader is the importance of leadership. As I've started to step into some leadership mm. roles, I've loved learning it so much about it and experiencing that leadership is really servanthood.
1: You yeah. know, if yeah. you're if you're looking
0: for accolades, it's such a good point. If, yeah. if you're looking for accolades, those may come as the result of being a great leader. But if that's your yeah. goal of being a great leader, I don't think you're going to be a good one. Ultimately. You have a lot of problems, and the buck stops with you. So you really have to want to yeah. truly help people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I would say just kind of following on that culture is the most important thing that has either for me personally kept me someplace, yeah, or has you know made you force me just by my own sort of energy and where I derive, you know, that passion from culture has either kept me with its stickiness or it's like caused me to depart faster than you can imagine. And the importance of that, I think in leadership, it can't be, you know, overemphasized enough. It is the reason I've seen over my career as a leader Building teams, building markets, building new companies, is that culture will make the difference for everybody. Mm. The product will make a difference for half of the people, but the culture makes a difference for every single person. And, you know, it's usually their direct culture. So it might be their direct manager, the direct people they work with. And you know, people can get rallied around products. They can get rallied around like innovation, but it's really the culture that really connects people and brings them together. And you know, uh, listen, I'll stop. You know, shouting out on the Arthur uh, bandwagon, but he was the he is the best boss I've ever had. And so, when I think about what to do, I often think, how would have how would Arthur have handled that situation with me? Yeah. Because, you know, there's nothing like your personal experience. And I can remember moments where the culture could have been crushed. I mean, crushed. Yeah. But we worked so hard. We used to call it bleeding orange because the orange aprons. Yeah. And it was like that orange apron was almost like an armor. You put it on, you represented no different than when you represent your skate, you know board or your anything, yeah. your team. That was the team. And so that's a that's a good point. I can't imagine you uh doing the staples at the tax firm, but hey, listen, it's always good. If you can have a tax firm that has an amazing culture, kudos, John, you found the right one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did. Shout out Ed Ofterdinger was the managing okay. partner oh, there. Wow. Yeah, we just yeah. called him Ed. I don't know why. Um, I can see why. (laughs) Yep. But I'll I'll tell you this, you know, I was, I started at the very bottom of the, you know, the corporation. I was, you know, I was a temp, number one, I'm delivering mail, I'm cleaning out. I'm not meeting in meeting rooms. I'm just cleaning them out before and after (laughs) more important people are meeting there. Filling printers with paper, things of this nature. Then Mm -hmm. I got hired on full time. I was there for a couple of years. Well, you know, I'm at the very bottom of this corporation and Ed heard that I was leaving. After a couple of years, was going to move back to mm. California, go back to school, and he took the time on a Saturday when I was working. We were it was tax, yeah. you know, tax time. You work um, on the weekends a lot of times. He came down to my desk personally and said, "Hey, John, thank you so much for your time here. I hear you're leaving." And you know, I I asked him in that moment. I said, "You know, Ed, when my name's at the top of the building, what do I need to know?" And he said, "John, it's Great all about question. the people." He said, it's all about the people. And Beers and Cutler was the name of this tax firm. Um, They've since been acquired by Baker Tilly. But he he said, we're we're very skeptical with the people that we bring on. We're not just bringing on the Mm -hmm. smartest person. We're interviewing with the full partnership team to make sure that it's a great fit. We're making sure that the people who lead this organization aren't just smart and experienced, Mm -hmm. but treat people well. And we saw people who who sometimes would not fit into that mold, and and they got rid of them, you know. And it, it was not an easy place to get hired onto. And yeah. I've kept that with me ever since then. Is it's it's out the about the people, and it, it's more about who you work with than what you even are doing together.
1: Yeah, that's really true. I've had some. I've always learned that my whole career as well, and. You know, the other thing that I think is important that you just hit on was, you know, most good leaders, they're in servant service of other people, whether it be the market, customers, the, you know, the employees, the, the mailroom person. I've never felt like there was a job beyond me. So like when you mm-hmm. said, you know, hey, I was the guy cleaning up the conference rooms. I, I've always been the leader that, We'll literally clean up the conference room after we're in it because it just shows, you know, a different side that it is about people. People are human. People make mistakes. Yeah. People do dumb things. People do really smart things. People do innovative things where you know i often talk about like you're learning most of your life when you stop learning mm-hmm. as a leader as an employee as a skater as an athlete as anything i don't know what your purpose is like if yeah. you know if you're not if you're not engaging with people you're not learning if you're not asking questions you're not learning and so it is such an important part of leadership that will be interesting to see how the world is tested over the next couple of years as we figure out everything online, if that in, in fact is the case. Like I wrote an article about, well, the thing we really are learning is in an online world, we really can find trust with each other. It's just, but again, it's about people. It's not about the technology. Right. And that's a huge message. I think, especially for sports is going back You know, technology started to lose the humanization of sports.
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: And I think, you know, at least Obsess, the importance of whether it's a leader, an employee, or an athlete and a fan, it's the human aspect that will figure out new and different ways to lead by.
0: Absolutely. Online,
1: hybrid, whatnot. So,
0: well, and I think a a lot of that. Yeah, I think a lot of that is commonality, relatability. I I believe I remember learning that the NFL really grew in popularity when they started focusing on the personalities of the players. Yes. One of the unique things is, you know, players, you've got a helmet on, so you can't really tell who that player is or know as much about them as an NBA player when they're on the court or on the field. But when NFL films started doing these features on the players, the personalities Mm -hmm. themselves, you say, oh, wait. You know, Tracy played volleyball. I play volleyball. Now I yeah, I feel like I have a connection with you commonality. And then, you know, with Obsession, what I love about it, and we'll get into that more at the end of this episode, but is when you yeah, when you have something that you can relate to, you have something in common with something you look up to, someone you look up to, it's just a different world. And and that's good not only just for the fan, for the athlete, and also even the brands that are associated.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think what you're doing is you're highlighting this big shift that started when really social media kind of took root, which was about 13 years ago. It's not that long ago. That was with like Facebook and Google. But all of a sudden you could see not just what the league was going to present to you or, you know, the, the football player running through the tunnel with his helmet, his gear. And you could tell he's kind of like, you know. He's a football player, but you don't know much else about him. All of a sudden, with social media, players got to show their personalities. Some in the early days were really good at it right away. Yeah. Others, you know, it's taken them some time. And still today, I mean, it's hard to believe, but there are still some players that are not on social media or they're only on certain platforms in certain ways. And so that personality, I think. To your point, the rise of that opportunity for people to see each other's personality all of a sudden just took fandom to like an entirely new desire right? and a new level. That was kind of like a first game changer for sports was the ability to see the player's personalities.
0: Absolutely. And today,
1: they want more. They don't just want some photos and texts, you know, pictures. Yeah. They want access they want to talk they want to have conversations they want to like be friends be friends in a online way be friends in a facebook way in a snap way in a tiktok way right so yeah it's that personality that makes a big difference
0: and it's not just these lebron jameses of the world it's now these Mm. niche athletes right it's miles silvis is one of my favorite skaters because when he was 14 years old i used to skate with him in sacramento you could see that this kid was just the future and now he's in his mid twenties and crushing the world. And so, you know, some things about miles, if you're, if you follow him on, on Instagram and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, speaking of niche markets, I want, I want to discuss a little bit your best buy career and and that digital piece of your career. Cause we had a conversation yesterday. We're talking about how you had this mass media and, Mm -hmm. you know, in the agency world, people doing big 32nd commercials. And then, You were playing in this digital space that seemed very consistent with your niche volleyball career, being able to kind of niche marketing, if you will. Share a little bit about that and some of the insights um, that you're able to pull from that experience.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when you go back, I'll just keep keep this short. But when you go back about, say, 40 years, so much before the start of my career, 40, 30 years ago, we really had this like television that was taking over the household, right? Yeah. A lot of people forget. And the only reason I know this is because of being at Best Buy. It wasn't until 2000 was the first time we had high def TV. And that was with the Super Bowl. That was like a big moment. Remember yeah. the world was going to end in 2000 for yep. some people. Right. And for the rest of us, it was like, holy, you know, we're at this like new next Era. And that yeah. era from about 2000 to 2010 was really about the growth of definition on TV and, but the television was still the center of the household. And so, so many people, if you were in the marketing space, you are a print advertiser, you are a television advertiser, you are a very specific channel advertiser, and you specialized in that. And we had some of the world's best, funniest, creative. I mean, Super Bowl ads back then were way better than now. you right. know. And so, but I started going in, I started out on the brand side with Home Depot and the retail. My second chapter was, I felt like I needed to go back and get my MBAs, which I did. And then I went into the agency world. And in the agency world, I started out with two companies, Jack Morton Worldwide, which was an experiential Okay. Events company, yeah, and Razorfish, which was this new digital agency, yeah, and I just thought, like, this is where the world's going. Like, sure. I the innovation, the creativity, the consumption. I could have never had the crystal ball where it's at today, nor twenty years from now. It'll be like way different, and we'll be looking back, going, "Wow, that's crazy." Right. But when I got to Best Buy, I got there. The reason why I was recruited to Best Buy was because I was at the time the pool of people specializing in digital was much smaller. Yeah. And the channels were, you know, simpler. And social media was just starting and people, the early adopters were using it. And Best Buy, as an old retailer that has always spent, you know, foot traffic on the floor in the store, all of a sudden, you know, it was like, one of the bets was to move into digital spaces. And so I came in as in the marketing side, building out all the digital capabilities. Whereas like when you were at GameStop, that was like one of the first, you know, gaming retailers to make. And that was a long time ago. Right, It wasn't that long ago. And so part of my role there was to, Find ways to embed and integrate digital technologies Mm. into everything in Best Buy, whether it was marketing, relationship management, the store employees, the our vendors. Yeah. The programs with the vendors, whatever it was, I had a lot of tailwind because Best Buy wanted to be known on Wall Street as a digital first company. And so Mm. it was the coolest job in the world because pretty much everybody said yes to everything.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, had to it do a lot like of persuasion, yeah. but,
1: you know, but they pretty much said yes to everything. And so I got to do things like be one of the first four advertisers to Twitter when it was still like oh, 10 wow. guys in a spreadsheet. Crazy. You know, and got to work, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg at the garage in Menlo when it was a super wow. small company and they hired their first sales guy. You know, and got to help companies like Foursquare Uh integrate their technology and become a company worth acquiring. Yeah. And so it was so fun. And, you know, we used it in every way possible. And that growth from like 2009 to 2015 was just all about the expansion of digital and channels and Mm. everything. Yeah. Apple sold its first smartphone in 2009. And only, I, I promise you, because Best Buy sold them all. Yeah. We were the only ones. Like, less than 1% of the market even had smartphones until about 2013. Wow. Yeah. And all of a sudden it went, woo.
2: Right. Know? Yeah. No yeah. Everybody has one. yeah.
1: Cool time. Your experience at GameStop, like, that was one of my favorite companies. Yeah. Because we were trying to integrate also new digital led tech led companies uh-huh. and GameStop was one of them.
0: So can you tell me what was, you know, how do you think that your your athletic background influenced the way that you thought about digital or maybe you took some opportunities that others with different maybe more traditional backgrounds would not have seen.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that comes to mind immediately is You know, as I explained, being in a niche sport, going into a niche world of, you know, my career with home improvement lifestyle, then, you know, really focusing on digital as a technology and enabler. I think the big thing is I've seen a lot of success in going granular and going niche. Yeah. And let me explain a little bit around that, which is whether you take television, you take digital, you take the smartphone, you take Airbnb as a platform company, there's a point where the market is always growing in mass. And three or four people own the lion's share of that mass. Yeah. And as a leader who, you know, spent a career largely as a uh, chief digital officer, chief marketing officer running, you know, both product and market and brand. It seems daunting to go mass because you're like, wow, you know, how, how do I take away time and energy? People only have so much time and energy and that gets smaller and smaller with the more technology Spend your time like trying to move a mass market. Mm. You know, you can own a a small piece of a mass market and own a niche inside that mass market and have more effectiveness than trying to, you know, spray and pray as we call it in a mass market. And so my big thing is go granular niche even and start with a really passionate small avid base. It's been that way for all of niche sports. Yeah. Like the majority of sports are niche. And what what do we mean by that? It's not that they're small. There's 250 million soccer players in the world. There's like 300 million volleyball players in the world. There's probably, you know, 2-300 million skaters and action sports. Right. They're not small. Football is actually small, you know, but it's had mass marketing abilities around it mm. and systems built for it and so i think going the niche route has so many advantages and i think because the world is changing where you know take social media if you're going to create the next social media company on an ad model you got a lot of work and a lot of money to you know to spend sure you got a lot of time but If you're going to own, you know, in the case of, say, art or a specific segment of entertainment, you can go deep. You can get all that quality. You can get the quantity within a smaller niche. And I just think it applies to so many things in life. It applies to the type of people you hire, the type of companies you build, the products you set out or as an entrepreneur, how you, how you tackle a market, how you tackle what you're going to do and win in that market. So,
0: yeah. I like that. Do you have an example, whether it's, maybe it's something you've done or maybe it's something that you've seen somebody else do that you're a fan of to see, you know, a niche market to really move the culture. And they were (laughs) able to do a lot more than if they were focusing on a mass market.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think there's a couple things and probably some that are more near and dear to people right now because of buzzwords and uh, so forth. But let's take like the influencer market marketing space. Right. We could take it for sports, but the truth is the influencer marketing space started out with really, you know, the niche sports, like in particular skate culture. I mean, you know. That was influenced before influence was cool. What we did at beats that was influenced before it was a buzzword, you know, GoPro, yep. that was influenced before the buzzword. But if you take the growth of social media, you started to see, you know, all of a sudden when people's personalities can come out, you would see influencers all of a sudden gaining a lot of reach. They were almost like a reach engine, you mm-hmm. know, it was just like, right. Follower, follower, follower. And the world, the advertisers in particular started leaning toward, Oh my gosh, they got these big followers. Like, and all of a sudden you would take somebody who, who wasn't expected to be this giant influencer. And they had like 4 million more followers than some celebrity who'd spent 25 years building their career in Hollywood. Yeah, (laughs) And so brands were like, well, I'm going where the numbers are because that's what brands were used to coming off of television. I'm going where the numbers are. Yeah. And so you'd see that, but then all of a sudden, you know, you would start to see little, I'm not talking about micro influencers the same as being niche. I'm talking about niches where somebody specializes in something. They have like this deep passion, but you would see all of a sudden, you know, smaller level of influencers who have more specialization all of a sudden they have more loyalty and more influence on their followers because their followers largely feel like they want to know everything about them they Mm. want to be like them they want to look like them and what it comes down to is this like emotional hook where it's well maybe i could be them and there's sure. that attainability. And so yeah. we've seen over the last five years, all of a sudden now, you know, you take somebody, let's use a couple of examples, just, you know, near and dear to our heart. We've got Nigel Houston, right? Sure. He was in that generation over the last 10 years. He's got four and a half million plus followers.
2: Yeah. Insane.
1: But then you take, you know, like, let's take one of the young girls like Leticia Buffoni right. from Sao Paulo. Yep. She's only got like, I don't know, 65,000 followers. Well, as compared to two skaters, a female and Nija. Right. Such a difference. But people that follow atisha whether you're male or female whether you're an avid skater an amateur a pro or just you also want to know like all her passion around other things outside of skating i would i would bet she's got just as much if not more influence on a day-to-day basis to impact things like you know, brand credibility with the products. Yeah. And so we're seeing this world change where it's not just you need mass quantity. You actually really need real quality because as the world has changed, younger consumers, they're not looking to be mass. They're looking to be unique.
2: Big time. They want to be yeah.
1: special. They want to be niche and they just want to be with other people like them. And so, It's such a fascinating time to see that shift. And so influencer marketing, even outside of sports, you find it in beauty, in fashion, in food. I think now because the rise of access to social media, more sports are able to come into light that never would have before, whether it be like curling or surfing, they're more accessible and they're more relatable. And so... I think that's where niche is really the new norm.
0: Yeah, I love that. I I think a great analogy is, you know, back in the day, everybody wanted to get the same shoes. You had to get the shoes that everybody else had. Now everybody wants shoes that nobody else has, right? Exactly, yeah. And then to your point with these, you know, the Letitia and the Nyjah example, it comes Mm -hmm. down to, I think, a conversion rate a lot of times where it's like, okay, you're doing mass market, you're doing a Super Bowl ad (laughs) buy or whatever. It Would you rather pay top dollar and reach, have an awareness of 100 million people or whatever their crazy reaches for the Super Bowl halftime show and then have a conversion of, I don't know, half a percent or whatever that thing is, or maybe smaller dollars? You're going to have to do more of them to reach the mass, but you're going to have higher engagement and you're going to have people who when you help them attain experiences, products, mm-hmm. things that they want that they can't get for themselves, yeah. they embrace your brand in in a wonderful way. And we we see it in esports and gaming, where you know this is a, a skeptical group of people. But when you do it the right way, mm-hmm. they'll embrace your brand uniquely, much greater yeah. than these yeah. these mass markets. And I think we see that same thing in in other niche followings as well. Is that is that accurate?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, I I can put the hat on both of like my chief marketing days, my advertiser days, as well as my entrepreneur and sort of that tapestry of being sports focused my whole life. Yeah. When you're, you know, when you're looking at a mass market, you really have to understand how am I going to tackle that? And, you know, we've talked about this before You don't climb a mountain by getting dropped off at the top. You don't, you know, go over the bridge by starting in the middle. (laughs) You have to like, a lot of times people forget that mass markets were built by going like micro moment by micro moment. As the old saying goes, you know, success is built from thousands, if not millions of very small moments. Moments that might change, yeah, over time. And so to your point, it requires patience, it requires time and it requires a lot of confidence. Mm. When you go niche, you know, nobody nobody wakes up. Like I don't wake up on any given day and say, oh my gosh, how can I think small about obsession? (laughs) It just doesn't (laughs) happen. Nobody does that, right? Right. But What I'm thinking about is how do I own and help the niche athletes become the best products, entertainers, you know, inspirers, coaches that they can be. And so when you look at the niche market, I think the, the big thing I'm seeing as a consumer marketer is young, the younger generation, the benefit of new technology is it always usually gets better. Right. And, and so that younger generation, they don't want, you know, the 18 year olds today, Nigel Houston, Tony Hawk, those guys are awesome. They're cool, but they're kind of icons. They're not attainable. They're not accessible, whether it be social media or not. And so, but when you're looking at, you know, like one of my favorite is, and I hope I don't, you know, crush his name, but Matters, Matters.
0: Uh-huh. Yep. He skates for DC yeah. shoes and element skateboards. Yep.
1: Yeah. Well, he is a super good example of he feels accessible. He feels relatable. He's trying new things. One day he's got a pair of shoes. The next day he's like, oh, that, those didn't work. So he feels real to people. Yeah. And that's what the younger generation wants is that connection. And so I think going after the niche audience is there's a new rise in its popularity. I hope it doesn't crush people, but I mm-hmm. hope it helps, you know, the growth, but I'm seeing it in even like sports where there's an ultra following. Skate has always had that, but in particular we're starting to see things like I'm seeing it in kind of edgy sports like parkour, yeah. uh, cliff diving and cliff jumping, which is like a freestyle, you know, free running. Yeah. These groups are splintering off and some young fan is like, oh no, this is like my jam with the parkour, but okay, here's my jam over here with, you know, my favorite snowboarder. Right. They're not one trick you know, one trick people. And so that is a big shift. And what that means is consumers, whereas you and I, like I was playing volleyball. That's all I did. I played it. I watched it. I tried to pick up the moves I trained for. it. Everything was a volleyball, volleyball. Yeah. Almost obsessively. The younger fans, they want to be a great volleyball player, but they also want to be, why can't I be a great skater?
2: Right. Can't I
1: do this? And so, that niche over the last couple of years has become more important about owning your specialty hmm. and being really good at that because it's going to deliver more quality, more influence. It's, but it's harder for advertisers. I got to be honest. It's harder for brands because it takes more time. It takes more patience. Yeah. And oftentimes you, you, can't accelerate those things because it becomes forced it becomes fake it right you loses its authenticity and a lot of brands unfortunately i don't know what happens they start out and then they're like we should be like the biggest mass market brand within the next two years and it just i've never seen that happen
0: yeah i think yeah. i think you know consumers just demand more of brands from yeah. now on yeah one thing i wanted to to get in here before we end the episode is talk a little bit about the interactions that the, the people, the fans on Obsesh are having with these athletes. We were talking about this yesterday and I thought it was really interesting and eye-opening to hear about the types of interactions people are having and the value that fans are having along with the value that athletes are receiving on the platform as well.
1: Yeah, thanks. Any moment where I can, you know, sort of help push Obsesh in our mission, which is to help athletes be able to productize their skills and talent in a way that they love doing it and can get paid for it and fans fans get to connect with the athletes, any athlete from like the just from your phone book an experience. And so some of the things we're seeing from fans without a doubt so far, almost 85% of all fans want to learn the skills tips, tricks and techniques and training methods. Of the athletes they admire. Okay. Yep. You know, there's been some, you know, folks out there because there's the rise of, you know, more sort of digital autographs like Cameo. Mm
2: -hmm. Like,
1: well, they're just going to want to like sing happy birthday. No, actually 87% want the athletes to like help them learn and gain new skills.
0: Interesting. That's super cool.
1: So that's a huge thing. So we'll see things like. You know, uh, a swimmer might be asking a pro athlete, how do you focus on your catch, which is how you pull the water back? And that athlete who's got the skills, got the techniques, and has had the experience of having to learn it, figure it out, be coached, can easily share that with the individual. So it's Mm -hmm. as simple as the fan goes on the platform every athlete sets their prices and their products. And right now we have one product, which is personalized video experiences. So an athlete uh, fan can go on there and they can say, Hey, you know, Dan, I'm looking to figure out my catch, my left arm. I just feel like I can't get it. My coach in high school keeps telling me, it's not good. It's not good. Can you help me? And he can upload his own video and Dan Warden, the athlete, is demonstrating, showing them, but also breaking down his own skills. It's so cool. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you get somebody, we've got a professional cliff diver, Ellie Smart. She's a Red Bull diver, yep. top, top in the world. And fans are asking her, you know, can you help me overcome my fear of mm. just diving off the springboard well here's a a badass athlete a woman who is diving 60 to you know 100 feet yeah and she can sit and talk to her and inspire this young girl about she feels scared too and here's how she overcomes that and Mm. here's what happens when she overcomes it and how she focuses on it And so the questions and the requests, we call them, you know, fan can request anything from an athlete and the athlete has the opportunity to be themselves, be authentic, share, have fun, bring their personality out. And it is so cool, you know? So it's all over the place. And we're seeing also, I just want to say this is going to level up the playing field, not only for, fans and for athletes, but it's going to level up the playing field for every niche sport, every female athlete, every athlete in the world can now have a platform with the tools and resources to step in, take 15 minutes to get set up, set their prices, use their phone and start making a living doing what they love, which is sharing their experiences, sharing their knowledge, leaving behind their legacies and having a freaking blast at it.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I, I think it's it's so cool. It's really inspiring for me to hear your story. You know, you've you found your purpose where you yeah. through your career, from being an athlete to then a leader in business and marketing to now an entrepreneur, have found a way to help those who are in the position that you are in as an athlete, and then also give the fans experiences that are unparalleled. So it's really inspiring to me. I always love the opportunity to talk, to talk with you. Why don't you give us a few ways to, to find you for our audience and anything lastly that you'd like to plug?
1: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. I am, I think I'm Tracy Benson on LinkedIn or TB Digital, but you can find me by looking up Tracy Benson or Obsesh. You can find Obsesh, which is at Obsesh.com. So it's O-B-S-E-S-H as in obsessions. So think of level up your obsessions, Obsesh.com. Our platform is going to be coming out of beta. Our marketplace is going to come out of like the invite only from the athletes today, and so, in about three or four weeks, you're you'll be able to find the experience right there. As a fan, you can sign up, book an experience anytime. As an athlete, we'd love to hear from you. If you got the willingness, you want to deliver great experience and you want to do it in a way that helps you thrive on your own terms, you can go to Obsess.com, enroll talent, and it's easy. Or you can find us on Instagram at Obsess Media.
0: Perfect. Well, I love it. And thank you so much again uh, for joining us. I know our audience got a lot out of this episode, just the, the the whole path and very inspiring. A lot of business insights. Tracy Benson, co-founder, CEO of Obsessed. Thank you for joining us on the DLC Drop Podcast.
1: Thank you, John. You're awesome. And I love the DLC. So drop it.
0: Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.